The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. But the bottom line is that all of those anxiety disorders are all contingent upon my learning experiences and what I learn unintentionally to focus the source of my anxiety on, right? And as you can see, you could easily see how people's learning experiences can dictate what type of anxiety disorder they, they develop. Hi there. Welcome to Students of Mind, the mental health podcast made by curious minds for curious minds. On this podcast, we the hosts are just like you, eager to learn more about the mind. Here, we learn with you and provide you with clear, concise information backed up by real experts about all things mental health. My name is Jade, and today I'm joined by anxiety expert Dr. Kevin Chapman to talk about anxiety both as an emotion and as a mental illness. Today's guest is Dr. Kevin Chapman. Dr. Chapman is a clinical psychologist and the founder of the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, where he specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety and panic disorders, exposure and response prevention for OCD, and prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. Dr. Chapman obtained his PhD in clinical psychology at University of Louisville, where he received further training in evidence-based treatment of anxiety and related disorders. Dr. Chapman's anxiety work and public education have been included in several national and international media platforms, including Bloomberg Businessweek, USA Today, The Washington Post, and many others. Welcome, Dr. Chapman, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So I know I just said a whole spiel about the work that you've done, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself um, and also just how you've been doing with everything going on in the world right now? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, let's see. I'm from Louisville, Louisville Kentucky originally. Um, I did my PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Louisville, uh, where I specialize in the family transmission of anxiety. So, you know, really my research program, I was a professor at the University of Louisville U of L. And my research focused primarily on the family transmission of anxiety um, in African-American families as compared to non-Hispanic white families, because, you know, I recognize that though anxiety disorders are the most prevalent type of disorder, there's been very little work done, particularly with people of color. So, you know, I spent much of my research career in that regard. And of course, naturally, I was interested in the treatment of anxiety and related disorders, which is really my focus at this point. Um, so really focusing more so on cognitive behavioral therapy and the implementation, the time-limited implementation of cognitive behavioral therapy for all things anxiety, which of course includes panic, social anxiety, OCD, phobias, worry, 
um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, based upon that, you know, that's how I got interested in psychology, just really fell in love with my first uh, psychology class as an undergrad. And I'm like, yo, I want to be that. And that's when I got excited about wanting to do that uh, because more people have anxiety than anything. And yet only a third of people receive treatment, yet it's treatable. Right. So with that being said, I'm like, huh, I need to sign up for that and do some things to try to um, to help that. And so that's why I got interested in psychology. And, and this is why, you know, I started KY Cards to create a treatment center so that people can come and get time limited, effective evidence based treatment. Um, in terms of how I'm dealing with everything else, I have to practice what I preach. There's a whole lot of uncertainty in our world right now, as we can imagine, and ultimately being flexible and how I'm thinking about myself in relation to other people is one of the heart and soul things that have been important to me my whole life in general, but especially right now is really practicing the same techniques and such and being as flexible as I can to navigate my environments, plural, right, um, through the climate that we're in right now, so. Thank you for sharing a little bit of how you're doing. Um, I think first, I just want to talk about anxiety as a general term. Um, I'm actually really excited to be having this conversation because I've struggled with pretty severe anxiety for as long as I can remember. So um, I'm just excited to uh, be able to sit down and like produce uh, an episode where we can like explain it and try to get people to understand that it's real. Because mm -hmm. um, I think that's one thing that I hear a lot is that like it's in your head and anxiety isn't real. And that's something that's like really hard to hear as someone who struggles with it. Um, so yeah, so first I want to just ask you um, to talk about what is anxiety um, apart from being a mental illness? Like how does that show up in our everyday life? That's a good question, Jade. I think that, you know, if you define anxiety, you know, us empirical eggheads, we call anxiety preparatory coping, which if you think about the term preparatory coping, it implies that anxiety is actually a good thing to help you deal with, well, with what? Well, it, anxiety is meant to help you prepare for future threat, not necessarily current threat. So anxiety empirically is defined as thoughts of uncontrollability and unpredictability of future events. It's almost like saying, Jade, comma, I don't know if this event's going to happen again or not, but I have to be prepared just in case. Like that's essentially what anxiety is trying to help us prepare for is the possibility of some sort of loss or the possibility of some sort of foolishness that would, might, might happen if I'm in a social setting or the possibility of failing an exam, right? Meeting someone new. So anxiety by definition is meant to help us prepare to deal with the potential of threat. And the, the level of threat is not important per se, it's just the threat that's relatively speaking, right? So being able to manage that. So anxiety at the core, honestly, Jade, is supposed to help us navigate our world successful, just like other, successfully, just like any other emotion is, like fear or disgust or anger or sadness. All of those emotions serve an adaptive purpose. Anxiety is never a problem unless it's chronic. And that's the issue that many people face is that there's a normal level of anxiety that's helpful and healthy for all of us to prepare for future things. But when it's at a chronic level, when it's impairing our functioning, when it creates subjective distress, in other words, I'm bothered by it personally, that's when anxiety becomes a problem and that's when it can manifest as a disorder. Okay, so can we talk more about like how 
we know when we're experiencing anxiety more as like a mental illness as opposed to just some of that normal anxiety? Yeah. And I think that the the main two criteria when thinking about anxiety versus chronic anxiety, otherwise known as an anxiety disorder, is two things. Number one is that it impairs my functioning in some capacity. In other words, it messes things up for me at work or school or with social relationships. So some facet of my identity is impacted in a negative way by the symptoms that I'm experiencing. So I might be late a lot. I might not be as productive Right. I might fly off the handle. I might engage in a great deal of avoidance behavior, which avoidance behavior is like the heart and soul of anxiety disorders, is that I'm avoiding some facet of that feared outcome, even with my thoughts. Worry is a form of avoidance. Another discussion. So there's that. Second piece is that I'm bothered by it, although otherwise known as subjective distress. I'm personally affected and I don't like the intensity of the symptoms that I'm having. So therefore, if I'm personally bothered by it, it implies that it's a problem. So in other words, if there's some sort of impairment in at least one area of my life where I'm not enjoying things or doing things at the level that I'm normally used to, and I'm bothered by the symptoms, then that is the generic, I guess, criteria for whether or not I need to get assistance from somebody that's a mental health professional with my anxiety. Though, depending on you know the the, the manifestation of the symptoms, that's where we get into anxiety disorders, right? Depending on the the focus of the anxiety, like with social anxiety, which is the fear of negative evaluation, or the fear of fear, otherwise known as panic, right? Or the fear of specific objects or situations, otherwise known as a phobia, the fear of negative outcomes of some sort, otherwise known as worry, right? OCD, like these intrusive thoughts that I have, and then rituals associated with that. So the amount of time that I'm spending trying to manage my anxiety, and it's backfiring and perpetuating it, that tends to be, you know, one of the main features of anxiety and related disorders in that way. I'm so glad you mentioned um, all of those different disorders, because I feel like people kind of group anxiety all into just one thing. And there's no really distinction because all anxiety isn't the same. Um, so I'm really like glad that you made that distinction. Can, can we talk more about like... Um, anxiety as like an overarching category and like some of the most common disorders that are under that category? Absolutely. So like we talked about, anxiety is a future-oriented emotion that we all experience to help us prepare for threats. So if you couple that with people who have a tendency toward experiencing anxiety at more frequent and intense levels, Jade, ultimately what has to happen for somebody to develop an anxiety disorder in general is that the stars have to align, if you will. So for, for instance, we have what's called a generalized biological vulnerability, AKA many of us are born with certain temperament factors like neuroticism or shyness or introversion. All of those kind of mean the same thing. It basically means that genetically speaking, that I experience core emotions more intensely and frequently than others. For example, like somebody who's high in neuroticism, it's like, oh, you might get kind of anxious, Kevin, but I'm on 10, right? Or you might kind of turn all the way up, but like I'm all the way on level 99. Or if I get sad, I don't get kind of sad. I'm like Eeyore sad, right? So some people just have a tendency to experience emotions at a very frequent and intense level. Coupled with living in an environment where things might be proceeding out of control or that are unpredictable, like we know there's a family transmission of anxiety. So if I live in an environment where my caregivers are 
you know, not that predictable or there's a lot of uncertainty, that kind of plants the seed for me to think about myself in the world as kind of a dangerous kind of vibe, right? That those two things coupled with specific learning experiences lead to, which is what I call a specific psychological vulnerability, those three things, generalized biological, generalized psychological, coupled with specific psychological learning experiences or vulnerabilities equals the manifestation of like an anxiety disorder. So when you think about an anxiety disorder in general, my environmental experiences tend to dictate what that is. So social anxiety disorder is not only the third most common mental health condition, it's the most common anxiety disorder. And that's roughly about 15 million Americans per year. And that's basically a persistent fear of one or more social situations or performance situations where negative evaluation may occur. So, you know, again, that whole baseline I told you about already, Jade, if it subjectively bothers me and it impairs my functioning, kind of as the generic criteria, the focus with social anxiety disorder is this fear of negative evaluation. So I might be really anxious about initiating or maintaining conversations, speaking to authority, small group interactions, public speaking, which is the number one fear in the United States, actually. Like that's social anxiety disorder, and that's the most common anxiety disorders um, disorder. And generalized anxiety disorder, which is I think roughly 6.8 million Americans per year, is the worry disorder. So it's me having excessive anxiety and worry about a number of events or activities in my daily life. Typically, it includes things we all think about, my health, health of significant others, family, finances, work, school, minor matters like being on time, small repairs, things like that. But the thing is, is the level of that worry is chronic because it occurs more days than not, and it happens most of the day, and I can't turn it off. Like some people who have normal worry, which is really no such thing, but let's just go with that, are able to turn it off and move on to something else. People who have chronic worry, or otherwise known as generalized anxiety disorder, don't have the ability, unless they have treatment, of course, to do that. Um, so coupled with that, you know, then we have obsessive compulsive disorder, which is no longer an anxiety disorder per se. It's its own disorder, but it's historically we've classified it as an anxiety disorder. Um, but in terms of other anxiety disorders, phobias, of course. So, you know, we can have a phobia of a lot of different things. So that's a specific fear of an object or situation. So whether I anticipate encountering it or if I do encounter it, I have panic-like symptoms as a result. So that could be heights storms, water, flying, which is a very common one, what we call blood injection injury phobias, which is, of course, needles in the sight of blood. There's also what we call emetophobia, which is the fear of vomiting. Believe it or not, I see a lot of clients with that. Um, and there's a whole host of phobias in that regard that you know are problematic. Um, and I'm trying to think. So social anxiety, of course, um, we mentioned OCD briefly, phobias, generalized anxiety disorder, um, and then panic disorder. And panic disorder is basically having panic attacks, which is basically the fear response out of context. So me having a discrete period of intense fear, discomfort that comes out of the blue, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I have heart palpitations, shortness of breath, hot and cold flushes in my body, tingling or numbness sensations in my extremities. And I feel like I'm going to pass out or lose control. And if that happens in certain situations and I start being afraid of having panic in certain situations, we call that agoraphobia. And that's a separate diagnosis, but it goes along with panic attacks. So ultimately, I think what you're seeing, Jade, I mean, that's kind of the crash course vibes, right? But the bottom line is that 
all of those anxiety disorders are all contingent upon my learning experiences and what I learn unintentionally to focus the source of my anxiety on, right? And as you can see, you could easily see how people's learning experiences can dictate what type of anxiety disorder they, they develop. Now, can we start uh, to talk about how these different disorders are treated? I know that you said, or at your practice, you guys utilize cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which I'm familiar with, but I feel like that's a therapy that's thrown around right now. People are like, CBT is what we're doing, but some people probably don't know what that is. So can you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and then the other types of therapies that there are for treating anxiety disorders right now? Yeah. Um, so the gold standard treatment of anxiety and related disorders is definitely cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT. And the reason I say gold standard is that there's a difference between the gold standard and the first line treatment. The first line treatment of anxiety disorders, of course, is medication meaning that's the most readily available and the one that's sought out initially with most people. But the gold standard treatment, meaning the most research-based and effective treatment across studies would be CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And CBT, you know, the basic premise behind CBT is that all emotions have three components. You have your thoughts or cognitions, you have your feelings or physiological arousal, and then you have your behavior and what you do. So any emotion you have has those three parts. And cognitive behavioral therapy essentially teaches people how to recognize the interplay between one's thoughts, physical arousal, and behavior because they all affect each other. And what we know from decades and decades of research is that all anxiety and related disorders all involve negative interpretations or negative appraisals of situations and avoidance of some form of avoidance of emotions. And CBT, CBT teaches you strategies to become your own psychologist, if you will, to not only not avoid by confronting emotions, meaning confronting situations and things that trigger them, but also learning how to be more flexible in how you think about those situations and teaching your brain what we call a new non-threatening association. Because in many ways, anxiety disorders are maintained by not only avoidance, but also negative thoughts but also this idea that I have these learned associations that I've created, where if I encounter, say, heights, that forms a powerful memory association in my brain, kind of like Pavlov, right? Pavlov and the dogs and such is a good example of that, is that these situations now represent for me threat and danger and uncomfortable feelings. So ultimately, we're teaching your brain how to create these new non-threatening associations by not only changing your thoughts and altering those thoughts, but also confronting as opposed to pushing away those situations and creating these new associations in your brain. So we're literally reprogramming you, if that makes sense. So that's kind of the, the best way to describe correctly done CBTJ. Don't get me on my soapbox because a lot, like you said, a lot of people, Oh, oh, I know. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people throw CBT around and I assure you being someone that's certified in CBT, <laughs> 
a lot of people say they're doing CBT, but when you look closer, they're just using CBT techniques, but they're not really grounded in doing them. So it's not embedded in a program of research and it's not time limited, it's not structured, it's not collaborative. Like all of that is really CBT. And most people who say they're doing CBT are just kind of flirting with CBT. But yeah, there's that. Yeah, I, I, I've had um, a lot of experience with like hospitalizations and, and going through the whole from like a crisis point to being outpatient. And I just remember like, having to do CBT groups every day. And I just never felt like we were getting anything out of it. And it it, it felt more like harmful than helpful. Um, so yeah, I, I it, it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth about cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that, that that could probably change someone's whole motivation to like get help if they have one bad experience with that treatment and then they won't even want to try again. Yep. 100%. And I just briefly would say, Jay, just to be true to your question, there's also what's called acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. And that's another effective treatment for anxiety and related disorders. Um, mindfulness, of course, is another really nice infusion and ACT uses a lot of principles of mindfulness, learning how to be more present in your emotional awareness and learning that emotions typically don't reflect what's happening right now, but they tend to reflect what we think might happen two hours from now or two days ago. So learning skills related to regulating emotions in the here and now and accepting, you know, emotions and strong feelings as opposed to trying to push them away. So ACT, of course, borrows a lot from CBT principles and it's kind of an offshoot of that. But nonetheless, that's another very effective approach for managing anxiety and related disorders as well. Okay, so you... So your work is evidence-based. Um, I wanted to ask um, just how over the years, how our understanding of anxiety disorders has developed. Um, are we like more equipped to manage it now? Um, is there more stigma now? Is there less stigma? Like how is the overall view of anxiety disorders developed over time? Yeah. So I think that the good news is that we've evolved tremendously in our understanding of anxiety disorders, but also we've decreased the stigma associated with anxiety disorders. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But one really good reason is that more people are aware what anxiety is, what chronic anxiety looks like. And since more people in the world have anxiety disorders more than anything else, it's less stigmatized, right? So we also know that because more people have that than anything else, we also know that treatment is effective and it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. So I think over the decades of research that have been conducted, not only with decreasing stigma and it's been more socially accepted, but also we realize that the treatment for anxiety and related disorders, it works, it's effective and it's based in evidence. So because of that, people are more receptive to being able to seek treatment because more most people have some form of anxiety as an emotion we all experience. So therefore the stigma is less, but it's also very effective treatment. And because we understand the mechanisms that underlie anxiety, like avoidance behavior, worry, right? Ritualistic or compulsive behaviors. Like since we understand that, you know, really all people are doing Jade to try to feel better is do things that give them temporary relief, but that relief is temporary, but it backfires. 
and contributes more to that anxiety that they have. So since we understand those mechanisms, like the way people respond to anxiety, and then we also recognize that when we treat it a certain way, that those mechanisms are less frequent and they go away in many ways, then of course, more people want to seek that sort of treatment. Um, this is kind of going back, but I'm wondering um, what we know about anxiety in terms of like how it shows up chemically, like in the brain. Um, like how much do we know about how that works? Yeah. So we know quite a bit about how that works. Um, we know that there's a lot of brain mechanisms that are uh, in effect, so to speak, with anxiety. And typically when we, what we know about anxiety and other emotional disorders is that the limbic system in your brain is implicated in that. And the people who have a tendency toward having a hyperactive or overactive limbic system tend to be more likely to develop anxiety disorders. And just to be brief with, in terms of like brain chemistry with that, the limbic system, I mean, there's various elements of the limbic system, but the one that we, the ones that we know that are very important in understanding anxiety, well, first of all, the amygdala or amygdalas, because we technically have two, but that's another conversation. But the amygdala is implicated in that, that fear center, right? So that's kind of the Jaws music of the brain. It's like when the amygdala is activated, we know that there's like a lot of like distress and fear associated with that. We also have what's called the hypothalamus, which is like kind of the relay center for all that arousal that we have, that physiological arousal and such in our body. And that's implicated. And we also have the hippocampus, which is the memory center. And if you take that limbic system and you see people who have anxiety, we find that that's what's at play with people who struggle with anxiety. So it's like I have these strong memory associations for the threat I experience. And oh, by the way, my body is responding to any time I encounter it. So we see that that limbic system is very active, hyperactive in many ways with people who struggle with anxiety and through treatment through CBT and implementing various ingredients of CBT, what we find is that we're inhibiting that limbic system so that your amygdala is pretty much shutting itself up. Your hypothalamus isn't really telling you much of anything. And then you're remembering that these situations that I'm now encountering are not as threatening as they once were. So we're really dampening the limbic system and creating these new non-threatening associations in the brain. So that's really a, a really central element of anxiety is that, again, the amygdala, hippocampus, hypothalamus, and those networks in the brain structure that, you know, essentially tell us that things must be dangerous when in reality they aren't. Um, and then I have a follow-up question. Uh, for people who have, like, I guess it would be considered, like, treatment-resistant anxiety, um, like, what are the forms of treatment that are available to them? Because I know, like, for depression, they have, like, ketamine. Um, so I'm just wondering if there are any um, treatments out there that are being discussed or developed for those who have anxiety that's harder to treat. Yeah, that's a great question, Jade. And really, the short answer to that is that for many people, what we find is psychotropic medication is really the best boost for treatment-resistant anxiety. Um, really, that's the main one. And in terms of classification, I mean, there's really two major treatment categories in terms of psychotropic medication or medication for anxiety and related symptoms. And that would be SSRI medication, so antidepressants. So a lot of times you get a really nice combo when you combine an SSRI, like a Lexapro, a Zoloft, uh, a Prozac, right? Those sort of medications, 
along with therapy, that's usually the best combo. Um, you know, I'm not a huge proponent of what I'm going to say next, but it is an effective way to manage in short bursts panic symptoms and that sort of anxiety, but benzodiazepines, which is like Xanax and Valium and Clonopin and things like that. Now that can be contraindicated in long-term treatment with CBT just because it creates other problems. But ultimately those are the, the other things that kind of are adjunctive type of treatments that people use that can boost CBT and other similar treatment strategies by giving people the ability and the energy level to be able to do it, the dampen symptoms of depression, which of course is highly correlated with anxiety and allows people to really think more clearly to be able to do the things that are often difficult within CBT. And then going to like the other side of the spectrum, like when, when someone's first experiencing what they may be is an anxiety disorder, like what are things uh, like, natural or like physiological things that maybe you suggest that they like check in with and work on like sleep or diet or something like that that could potentially like help with their anxiety before going to like a medication yeah great question i think that actually thinking through just daily routine things that impact the the kind of arousal that we have without with or without anxiety is very important to rule out you mentioned sleep, which is essential, honestly, Jade. And what you find is that people who struggle with sleep definitely often are much more anxious than not. So sleep can disrupt a number of different things. It disrupts our concentration, focus, et cetera. So absolutely get, having good sleep hygiene is a really good natural way to you know, ameliorate or decrease symptoms of anxiety for sure. Um, so sleep hygiene is effective. Another thing, obviously, is diet, uh, which would include like decreasing caffeine intake and things like that. Granted, we infuse caffeine in treatment, but that's another discussion. But ultimately, things like having too much caffeine before I go to sleep, like that can contribute to hyperarousal and can, you know, contribute to nocturnal panic attacks in some people, right? So there's a lot of things that I can do to alter um, the, the tendency toward having anxiety and such. So sleep hygiene, diet and exercise, exercise, I've done so many interviews about that. Exercise is obviously going to be highly correlated with anxiety in either direction. So, you know, the more I exercise, the, the less anxious I tend to be, right? And the less I exercise, the more anxious I tend to be. So ultimately, exercise is another way to not only have a good sleep hygiene to increase positive mood or positive affect, but exercise also gets people used to uncomfortable physical sensations in their body that they otherwise are sensitive to, Right. So that's another really important element. Yeah, and I feel like exercise is also like a really good way to get rid of excess energy. Like I, I remember a friend told me that um, she said panic is just too much energy concentrated in one space. And that really resonated with me because when I am anxious and I go like do a workout, do yoga, dance or something, it really feels like I'm like, shaking out all that extra energy so i can really attest that exercise uh -huh. is really effective yeah, good.
And so shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to talk about kind of the, the state of anxiety in the U.S. right now. Um, I'm just wondering, like, in your practice um, or just in general, especially this year, uh, what are some things you've noticed behavior-wise in the patients you have who struggle with anxiety? Well, I think that primarily it's just been an increase in uncertainty, and uncertainty is the thing that's most highly correlated with worry and anxiety in particular is that just a state of uncertainty, not being able to predict outcome, not being able to predict you know, how long COVID's going to last, the parameters of COVID, things like that, not being able to predict when, you know, our racial injustices and stuff, how that's going to be resolved and what that's going to look like in my city. And do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Like all of that combined is all related to uncertainty. So I think that, you know, what I personally have seen really has not been an increase a lot in a lot of things per se, because I think that clients are kind of a biased population because they're getting treatment. So in many ways, they're effectively managing emotions. But I would say that, you know, the things I have seen an increase in is more concern about either giving COVID to someone like their family member or something like that, or getting it by going into a social setting and trying to navigate family who may not have the same viewpoints as me with regard to COVID. I do see that in clients quite a bit these days. It's just like being able to say, well, what's anxiety and what's just being smart, <laughs> right? And helping them navigate those sort of uncomfortable situations while following guidelines by CDC and yet being flexible and confronting anxiety at the same time. Um, have you, specifically for your Black patients, have you noticed that they're struggling a little more than other patients or is it about the same? Well, you know what I would say, Jay? is that like with my, the black folks that I work with in particular, and then, I mean, this is kind of a really nice PSA, is that, you know, it's interesting because I think that culturally speaking, what I've noticed in my black clients is that they're doing much better than people that I know personally, largely because we've recognized that people of color specifically need to, to adapt. In order to adapt, we have to adopt being flexible in the way we think about situations in general. And that's something that helps us survive anyway. So I think that ultimately, you know, I had a white client actually have this epiphany and this was really powerful for her to say this. And she said, I realized through working with you, Kevin, that being flexible is almost a privilege because it's something I don't necessarily have to always be. And yet, as I think about you and you know, your family and, you know, your friends and other black folks in, a, in the United States, it's like you have to be flexible. And for her to have that epiphany, I thought was really powerful because that's 100% correct. It's this idea that I have to be able to be flexible. I have to be able to manage my own emotions regardless of the election and the outcome they're in. I have to be able to be flexible about how I'm going to be perceived when I walk into the situation because it's going to negatively impact me <laughs> and the longevity of my life as a result if I don't. So it's this strategy that we've had to learn to adopt, you know, as black folks in the country in general, but especially right now. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted, I was curious about um, your experience of working in the field of psychology as a black person, but also as a man, because I know that 
this is definitely a field of a lot of women. Um, so I'm just wondering, uh, like, how that experience has been. And then especially this year, because I know with the racial tension in the country, you have probably been reached out to a lot. Um, yeah, no doubt. So, yeah, I'm just wondering how that experience has been. Yeah, well, I'll say this, Jade. I think that this is where I'm encouraged by, you know, our country and, you know, how many people have paid attention to you know, racial injustices and things along the lines that we've already known about. It's just they've become more salient because we have things like social media and cameras and stuff now. So with that being said, I think that the encouraging piece of that is that I've been more sought out, like you said, and I think that that's been across racial and ethnic lines. Like a lot of people, I think, deem someone like me in mental health as someone that's like, well, you know, they had to grind if they, you know, have a PhD, which is facts. It's true. There's no cap whatsoever with that. It is. I mean, ultimately, you know, being where I am in my career, I've had to do like twice as much work, right? I've had to prove myself and jump through more hoops and deal with more political stuff than anybody, right? In many ways. And, you know, I know that other people can attest to that. So, but getting on the other side of that, though, has been well worth it. Because to your point, you know, I've been reached out to uh, from, of course, a ton of journalists, but also because I do quite a bit of media stuff. But with clients, clients will seek me out for that perspective, too. Not only people of color for obvious reasons, but also, you know, white allies and such who are really trying to, you know, improve their emotional health and wellness. It's like it's almost like they're saying that it's almost like you have this uber credibility because they see you as a black male who is also a psychologist. So it's like, wow, this person is someone who's credible in their field in general, but they're also someone who understands cultural variables as well. And so it's like this dual expertise, if you will. It's funny, I'm doing a panel Monday with some colleagues for um, black indigenous people of color for students who are interested in grad school and psychology. And it's like the registration is crazy. It's like over 800 people have registered for it. And these are the sort of things that we're that I'm going to say, right? It's this idea that, you know, you got this dual credibility, you know, as a result of having to, you know, make it through the fire and to work through the things that we have to often go through to be successful in our career in a career where there's not a people, a lot of people that look like you. And then especially as a male in particular, you know, there's less black males in psychology than than others, right? So like, as there's way more black females than black males, and then of course, you know, it's a dominated primarily a female profession historically it's been white males but i think you understand at this point it's not but ultimately you know it just gives me the ability and a different perspective to be able to reach way more people than otherwise others can yeah that's that's so cool to me that um um that's just really what i want to do is get into this field because there aren't enough of us mm -hmm. um and try to transform things yep good um so it's talking more about uh how we as black people experience anxiety um can we just talk about that like the distinction um of how we experience anxiety compared to other people well i think that empirically speaking you know black folks are gonna you're gonna see similar rates of anxiety related disorders I mean, even some of the research I did indicated that, and that's good because it tells us something that we didn't know for decades in the literature is that, you know, black folks have similar rates of anxiety-related disorders as non-Hispanic whites. So that's a really good, like, rubber stamp, so to speak, to know that. 
But with that being said, we often too find though that of course race-based stress and stress and trauma is something that is unique to black folks specifically and people of color generally. And I think that that is something that is not necessarily accounted for as well as it could be in the empirical literature because race-based trauma isn't necessarily the same as PTSD, though there are some overlap. So just because we've experienced race-based stress and trauma doesn't mean we have PTSD, though oftentimes we have symptoms of that. So being able to recognize things like microaggressions, being able to recognize things like, you know, driving while black, just being able to like saying, you know, to my daughter, yo, I need you to might, you might need to record this if I get pulled over by a police officer. So like, those are not conversations other people have to deal with. And I think that because of that, the manifestations can be much more <laughs> what we call in the black community, healthy paranoia, right? It's like, there's some things I'm just going to like, I'm going to have to navigate my environment, but I'm going to be side-eyeing people, right? Or having to deal with that. I mean, that's much more impactful. And the kind of the, the culminating or accumulation, if you will, of all that stress and trauma that you have to deal with as a black person in the United States, I mean, that definitely weighs heavily on you. And it can manifest jade, of course, as anxiety-related disorders like panic and so on and so forth, but it can lead to high blood pressure and like heart problems, right? So it's like we really got to be on the grind even more so than other people just because we got to take care of our, our mind, our body, and our spirits. And I think that that's essential, you know, to Black Americans in particular is not just dealing with anxiety, but being able to take care of ourselves because we get impacted in so many different ways than other people. Yeah, and that is hard. I... Facts. Just like, yeah, like I I I remembered like at the beginning of the pandemic when I wasn't <laughs> I didn't have to go out and do anything, but just sitting at the end of the day and realizing how exhausted I am because of all of those like underlying daily the microaggressions things you see on social media mm -hmm. reinforcing those racist ideas like that in itself having to experience that is exhausting right and i don't think people get that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think that's just something that we have to emphasize that the the little day-to-day -day things those things add up yeah they, they do exhausting. they do in fact yeah um and then my last few questions um are more about kind of maintenance for my listeners because of everything that's going on right now. Um, as you know, the election just happened and I know everyone's feeling pretty intensely about it. Um, so I'm wondering if like what you've been suggesting to your clients about things to help with those anxieties around the election? Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I've, I've been new that that was a question I was going to be asked because I'm asking that question all the time. And I think yeah. there's two bits of advice to make it simple, Jay, one of which I've already suggested. And these are all easier said than done for a whole lot of reasons. So, but nonetheless, if you force me into a corner, I'd say two things. One, is that I have to adopt a flexible mentality about the election and everything else that I'm having to experience. And when I say flexible, let me let me be clear what I mean by that. I didn't say positive. I said flexible. And flexible thoughts, being able to generate different thoughts is really the key to regulating any emotion, not being positive. In other words, if I can think flexibly, coming up with alternative ways to view any situation, 
that's going to help me manage any emotion that I deal with, right? So being flexible and thinking flexibly, like it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could go this way, it could do this, it could be this, it could be that, is the key to being able to manage any emotion, regardless of what's going on. So that's really key. And I think the second thing, which is much more practical than that, Jade, and this is hard, but I'm, I'm telling you it's absolutely necessary, is to absolutely positively restrict how much media you are viewing. I mean, I can't say that enough is that if I'm incessantly checking and ritual, I mean, that could be ritualistic behavior. I assure you that's going to feed anxiety is when I'm incessantly checking and being distracted by that. So now that I say that, I think the other thing that, you know, other people can really think about the listeners of the show could do is to make sure that they're engaging into mindfulness exercises. I mean, there's a whole lot of apps for that, but basically learning how to be in the present moment, taking each moment at a time, because honestly, at the end of the day, what's important right now is what's important right now, not what's important in two hours or two days ago, right? So ultimately, being mindful, practicing those techniques, being flexible in how I'm thinking about things, and absolutely limiting how much media I'm indulging in is absolutely key right now. Okay, and then... um just in general, what are some resources that you would suggest for people wanting to learn more about um, anxiety disorders, either if they're just curious or if they're wondering if they're struggling with one? My very favorite website to get some free resources and to learn more about anxiety is an organization that I'm a part of called the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. That's org, And it has a plethora of stuff on there from articles, from blog posts, from what is anxiety to what's this disorder. And it's a phenomenal organization. Another one is what I call um, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, abct.org. That's another very good website to check out. If you want more OCD specific things, I would say the International OCD Foundation. So if you take those letters, it's iocdf.org. And all three of those organizations that have like a wealth of information just to give people, um, you know, enough about like how to seek treatment, get the right provider. If you want to know more about your symptoms from not only a client's perspective, but from a professional's perspective, these are all very user friendly, if you will, organizations. So those are the three big ones, I would say. Okay, great. And then lastly, how can myself and my audience stay up to date with the work that you're doing and then also the work that, um, your practice is doing. I appreciate that plug, Jade. Um, I'm relatively easy to find. So I would throw a plug in though, based on that is I'm all over social media. So you can check me out on Twitter. I stay on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Dr. KChap. KChap is my nickname for my homies, right? So at D-R-K-C-H-A-P, Dr. KChap on Twitter, Dr. Kevin Chapman on Instagram. You can go to my personal website, drkevinchapman.com or our center's website is KYCards dot com also on linkedin and, and facebook and other things like that but really the big ones are instagram and twitter so cool thank you so much for no taking the time i know you're probably so busy thank you for doing this i really enjoyed it um yeah me too i appreciate you having me on jade and hopefully this can help some folks and uh hopefully some good things will come from it
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. Please be sure to go to the description of this episode. There you will find how you can follow Dr. Chapman, learn more about the Kentucky Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, and find links to all the resources mentioned in the episode. Please be sure to give the podcast a review and share it with anyone you think could benefit from the conversations that we have here. Otherwise, thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time. Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm. 